If you've not been with us, uh, we have been uh, going through this book of Judges. It's the, um, I think, the seventh book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And where Judges finds itself in the biblical narrative is uh, that God's created people for himself. He's made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And even way back in Genesis chapter 12, he says, you will have a land. You will have a land of your own. Uh, but this promise takes a very, very, very long time and a really windy journey to be fulfilled. Uh, but it is fulfilled eventually in Joshua. Joshua is the book before Judges. And uh, he's the last leader before these different judges, these different deliverers are raised up. And what God told Joshua to do, he says, I want you, I want you Joshua, to lead these people to dispossess all the nations that live in the land I'm giving you. So when they show up to this land, it's not like the land is, is wide open. It's not like it's, it's, it's empty. There are people who live there. And God says, I want you to get rid of those people. He wanted to get rid of them, not because God is harsh, but because Israel was really that weak in their faith. Uh, that all the religious systems that those nations have set up would be so tempting, so alluring to God's people that they had to go. But Joshua doesn't completely obey God's command. So when we get the judges, it's a mess. There are still people in the land that God's giving his people, uh, other nations that are tempting Israel to fall back into idolatry. And that's what they do over and over and over again in Judges. And tonight we're going to look at the very last of these Judges, Samson. And what we'll see over the next uh, three or four sermons in Judges is that, uh, is that Samson, they hit, the nation of Israel hits all-time low. Uh, and if you heard the Jephthah story, <laughs> to go lower uh, seems impossible. But that is what has happened. See, we started this beginning of these cycles. The, these cycles have four steps that we'll get to later. But we kind of start out up, up top here. And the, in the nation of Israel, it sounds pretty good. The first judge is Othniel. And Othniel in chapter 3 is given all of six verses. Uh, we don't get a lot of details about Othniel, but in Othniel we get no character flaws and a really short story. But as we move through these cycles, two things happen. Uh, the characters become more and more complicated. They have more and more flaws. And their stories get longer and longer and longer until we hit Samson. And he gets the longest of all, of all the judges, of all the cycles. Uh, Othniel had six verses. Shamgar that we didn't talk about in here, but if you're, if you're reading chapter 3, verse 31, he gets one verse. Samson gets four chapters. He gets over a hundred verses. And what, what the, the writer of the book is trying to tell us is that Samson is the biggest buffoon you've ever heard of. And that's who we're looking at tonight. Um, we're looking at his birth narrative uh, in chapter 13. Uh, so let's read this passage together. Uh, we're reading verses uh, 1 to 7. I cut out 8 to 20, uh, not because it's not important, but because I'm just going to summarize it in passing. Uh, this is the bulk of uh, where the sermon comes from tonight. Verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, harsh, and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Good news. Verse 4, Therefore 
Be careful and drink no wine and strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah Knew that, he was, knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called him Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahane, Dan, between Zorah and Ashtel. The word of the Lord. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of Amy Winehouse. Anybody? Anybody heard of Amy Winehouse? A lot of you? Uh, those of you who don't know about her, I, I'd love to tell you about her. Uh, she really is um, one of my all-time favorite musicians, and um, I always really liked her music. And then um, I watched a documentary and I wept for hours. Uh, I knew kind of the basic narrative of her life, but I got more details and it's just, it is so sad. So let me tell you about her. She, um, uh, she was an English uh, singer and songwriter. Uh, she grew up in London. And uh, she had a really unique style that um, has really been characterized as jazz and soul and R&B kind of all mixed together. And her family is interesting. Uh, but her, her, to go back even a couple generations in her family, all you see are jazz musicians. She's got multiple uncles. Uh, she, her maternal grandmother was a, a jazz vocalist. And so she was always around music. And her grandmother, who she spent a lot of time with, the one who was a jazz vocalist, uh, picked up on this. And uh, she began to scrape together some money and sent her to theater school, sent her to voice lessons at the age of nine. And by the age of 14, she was... Playing her, she taught herself how to play guitar. She, um, she began to write all of her own music. And she was really talented. Uh, and at the age of 20, she produced her first album. And it became an underground hit uh, in England. People who were really in the music scene, they, they got a hold of this album. And she got a lot of acclaim. So she came out with the second album very, very quickly after that. And she had international acclaim from really that second album forward. She was maybe 21 at this second album. And uh, from the time of 21 to the time of her death, uh, she performed uh, with both Tony Bennett and the Rolling Stones. Uh, if, you know who, if you don't know who Tony Bennett is, you need to Google him. And then you need to Google Rolling Stones and think, how in the world did the same person sing with both of these groups? It really is fascinating. But that's how talented Amy Winehouse was. She really, she had it all. She had family, she had the family heritage, she had natural talent, she had a distinctiveness, a uniqueness about her voice. But if you know her story, you know how things unfolded. Very sad. And as early as this second album, the one that got her international acclaim, the wheels began to fall off the wagon of her life. She fell victim to alcoholism and to drug use. 
Uh, she had tour dates that were can- canceled. Uh, her recording in the studio was unpredictable at best. Her love life was a roller coaster. And those closest to her betrayed her time and time again. And then she ended up dying at the age of 27 to alcohol poisoning. And her story forces us to ask a lot of questions. One is, why couldn't she stay healthy? Did her fame crush her? What role did she play in her demise? And what role did those closest to her play in her demise? My personal take uh, is that those closest to her bear the majority of the blame, which is really often the case in stories like hers. But I think the big question for us is, how could someone with so much going for them experience such tragedy? And that's really what we see with Samson. Samson has so many advantages. He's really on track to become the greatest deliverer in all of Israel's history in the book of Judges. And really, what I want to do tonight is I want to look at the advantages of Samson. I want to compare his life to the life of Jesus. And I want to have a couple takeaways for us. Uh, So the advantages of Samson. Uh, The first one was his miraculous birth. Birth. Look there in verse 2. In verse 2, you read that Manoah's wife, that's Samson's mom, that she's barren. In ancient Near East, this is an abundantly shameful state to be barren as a woman, as it is today. It's so shameful that the author, author never even gives us her name. She's all over chapter 13. She's not just mentioned there in verse 2. She's in in every scene of the drama through chapter 13. And the only thing she's ever referred to as is Manoah's wife. But Samson's mother, Manoah's wife, she stands in a really long line of women in the scriptures who were once barren. And then God opens up their womb. You've got Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah and Elizabeth. So for Samson to come to be, it's going to take a miracle because his mother is barren. We also know it's a miracle because not just because she was barren and then had a baby, but we know that this whole angel encounter that she has. Uh, She's encountered by an angel. We read about it there in verses three to seven. And if we were to read the whole, if I would have read all of chapter 13, you'd see that there was the angel came a second time. And the second time the angel showed up, showed up to the mother and the father, Manoah and his wife, to talk about Samson's impending birth. So in many ways, it's surprising that a woman who's been dying to have children now becomes pregnant. But it's a miracle because this happens because of the presence of the angel of the Lord. So God's being very deliberate here. He's wanting to create a leader from scratch instead of just choosing from the best available. He's giving this homegrown leader every chance to succeed. So he has a miraculous birth. That's one advantage. The second one is that he's chosen by God. That whole thing about Nazarite, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Numbers chapter 6. And Numbers chapter 6, really, it's a lot of what we just read in Judges 13 of what it means to be a Nazarite. Nazarites, there's really three things that they, uh, that they had to commit to. One uh, was that they couldn't have anything that had to do with grapes. So they couldn't drink wine. Uh, they had nothing to do uh, with unclean animals, which meant that they couldn't be eaten or even touched. And the last thing is that they had to do nothing to do with a barber. 
They couldn't cut their hair. So if you chose to be a Nazarite, uh, you're going to be sober, skinny, and shaggy. That was their life. That's what they had to look forward to. And God's people did this, uh, not to kind of one-up their neighbor. I'm sure that happened because of their hearts. But the purpose of the Nazarite vow in, in number six was to have a season, of uh, a season committed to holiness, or maybe even, like in Samson's case, a lifetime committed to holiness. But God didn't command his people that they had to do this at some point in their life or for their whole life. It was just available to them. But see, he was set aside as someone holy because he had a special purpose. He had a unique task. He was going to deliver God's people from the Philistines. You saw that in verse 5. Verse 1 tells us that uh, that Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord and that they were in bondage to the Philistines. And verse 5 says that Samson, this one who's not yet born to a, a barren woman, is going to deliver them from the Philistines. That's his chosen job. And to show that he's special, he's also a Nazarite. So he's got a miraculous birth. Uh, he's chosen by God for a specific task. And then he's blessed and stirred by God's Spirit. The first 23 verses of Judges 13 have everything to do with the gestation period of Samson's life. Those nine months. But then in verses 24 and 25, uh, the author covers 20 years with two verses. And the, what they say about Samson is that the Lord blessed Samson and that the Spirit stirred him. But what's it mean? What's the author mean in verse 24 to say that he's blessed and that he's stirred by God's Spirit? I, I don't really know. And there's no way to really know, but it does mean that God did not superintend the events of his conception and his birth only to abandon him as he grew up. God was going to be involved with Samson all the days of his life to produce a leader for very specific purposes. So you get through chapter 13, if you're reading through the book of Judges, and you think, man, God really has had enough. Uh, he's been working with these no-name ruffians like Gideon and Abimelech and Jephthah. And now, instead of choosing a leader from a crop of buffoons, he's going to give his next leader every single chance to succeed. After all, this is the only nativity story, the only judge who gets an angel of the Lord visiting their mother. And it really does grow in us, the reader, a sense of anticipation of what this deliverer is going to be like. It, it really does heighten our expectations. And it also reminds us of another deliverer, doesn't it? A deliverer named Jesus Christ. And he's got a lot of similarities to Jesus. Even reading this whole chapter, especially within a month of Advent, within the month of Christmas, it's hard not to see the similarities between Jesus and Samson's birth. Both Mary and Samson's mothers were conceived miraculously. Mary was a virgin and Manoah's wife was barren. Mary and Samson's mother were visited by angels to announce the birth of their son. Both Mary and Manoah's wife uh, received a, a visit from the angel of the Lord. And that angel of the Lord appeared twice to confirm the birth. In both cases, uh, the angel tells the parents... Uh, that their son is going to be for a specific task. Verse 13, ch chapter 13, verse 5 that we just read says that he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Very specific purpose. Matthew 1.21, angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. See the common verb there, don't you? Save. He's going to be deliverers, both Samson and Jesus. 
Both Samson and Jesus received these terse summaries of their formative years. Samson's whole childhood and his adolescent years are summarized in those last two verses. And Jesus, we get four whole books on him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And only, uh, we only have one scene of Jesus' life after his birth and before his public ministry. That's when he was 12, and he was teaching, uh, he was teaching the leaders of the temple uh, the truths of God. And he ran away from his parents, and they couldn't find him. And at the end of that little snapshot, uh, there's a short statement that summarizes Jesus' years even, more, even shorter than Samson's. And it says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So you see, I mean, the, 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 there's so many similarities. It's, it's unmistakable that if, if, if you're reading Luke for the first time or you're reading Matthew for the first time about Jesus' birth and you know anything about Judges chapter 13, anything about Samson, you're like, Holy smokes, this is, this, is, this is so similar. And the reason that God does that is because He wants you to know that they're not two stories. There's not the Old Testament story about an angry God and the New Testament story about a real cuddly God. That it's one story. It is developing. And usually as you're trying to compare the, the differences between the two, you usually treat it like a scientist. You go down and you're like, okay, Isaiah chapter 7 says that uh, Jesus' mom's going to be a virgin. All right? Micah 5. Oh, right there. Jesus is going to be born in Nazareth. Oh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is going to come from the line of David. We're like, oh, proof right there. Not that that's bad, but that's more like science. And what we see here in Judges chapter 13 is more artistic. It's got more narrative similarities going for it. And that's the way we should read all the stories in the Old Testament. As we're looking for clues, how does this set us up for the person of Jesus? But you see that Samson's also very, very different than Jesus. Let me just, I'll do a few that are really obvious and one that's really clear. The first one, uh, Samson brought his mother honor because she was no longer barren, but Jesus brought his mother disgrace. You know why Jesus brought his mother disgrace, don't you? Well, his Mary and Joseph, they weren't married, and Mary becomes pregnant. And so what that meant for Mary was public shame, because she's going to have a child out of wedlock. And you can just picture Mary, can't you? Uh, for the next 30 years plus, she's saying, I'm telling you, it didn't happen. I was divinely, I, 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 Jesus really was divinely conceived. It was a miracle. I'm sure you know everybody was like, yeah, I heard that one before. <laughs> and then Jesus starts doing miracles. And then he starts raising from the dead. And she's like, see? He really is God. Mary got shame. Manoah's wife got honor. Look at their names. Their names are really different if you go beneath the surface. Uh, Jesus in Hebrew means God saves. It's strong and it's appropriate for who Jesus was. Uh, Samson's name means son child. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. And you know that all, all, the, all the pagan religions of the ancient Near East, the sun was a prominent God in their orbit of gods. <laughs> and so really what Samson's parents were like is that they were pagans too. Yeah, they showed faith all throughout chapter 13, but then they named their son, Sun God, or Sun Child. Isn't that what we do too? 
we mix our faith with our idols and we come up with our version of Christianity. Another difference. Uh, Jesus was holy from the inside out. Um, Samson was holy from the outside in. Jesus was holy from the inside out because uh, he was holy because he was God. That was his nature. He didn't need to take a Nazarite vow to achieve a holy status. Jesus' status as holy was who he was, whereas Samson's status as holy had to be maintained by what he did. Those are significant differences. But the biggest difference is that there's an incomplete salvation. I've said it several times. I've been trying to emphasize the verb. But verse 5 says that Samson would begin to save As we as the story unfolds, we'll see uh, kind of we'll see how Samson's character deteriorates. Um, but he ruled over Israel for 20 years. There was some kind of relief that Samson's leadership gave the people for 20 years. It was incomplete. He only began to save. He didn't save them completely because it only lasted 20 years. And even those 20 years, it wasn't very comprehensive because Samson had some serious character deficiencies. See, Samson really had no interest in defeating the Philistines. His real interest with the Philistines was to sleep with their women. Samson, he lives more by his appetites than by godly principles. Samson's better at avenging petty disagreements than he is leading with conviction. Samson is a self-gratifying brute. He's a womanizing prankster. His life starts well in chapter 13. It ends well at chapter 16, but the middle is a complete disaster. Oh, this is different than Jesus, right? Jesus' life begins with miraculous birth, just like Samson's. I'm going to give this away. Didn't plan on it, but I'm going to give it away because you can read it later. But Samson's life ends by him delivering God's people because of his sacrificial death. Hmm. That sounds like a scene from the end of Jesus' life, doesn't it? But the middle of Jesus' life was very different. You can't call Jesus a womanizing prankster. You can't call him a self-gratifying brute. Jesus says things like these about the middle of his life. He talked about the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Nothing like Samson. John 17, 12, Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. That's how good Jesus was at being our shepherd. You know the story of Jesus. He's tempted out in the desert. And we see that Jesus, he can't be swayed by evil, whereas Samson was swayed by evil at every turn. See, Samson begins to save God's people, but Jesus completes the salvation of God's people with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection. See, Samson's story makes us take a real hard look at ourselves, doesn't it? Let me give you two takeaways tonight. I could have come up with 18, but I'll just do two. The first one, first takeaway is that God uses hurting people. See, God used a barren woman. He could have chosen a woman who had children to produce someone like Samson. So why does he choose a barren woman? Why does he choose Mrs. Manoah? 
Well, it's because God's normal tendency is to use hurting people. God has a bias for nobodies. God delights in starting with human helplessness. See, in Samson's mother, there was nothing. God starts with nothing. So that means if you know you're nothing, you're a really good candidate to be an instrument of God. Hurting people, nobodies, and helpless humans are the perfect tools in God's hand. But if you're not convinced of your helplessness, you're missing out on the ride of your life. I would encourage you to pray uh, the scariest prayer that I know of and pray for God to afflict you. It doesn't seem right, does it? But it's in our affliction uh, that we become convinced existentially that we don't have anything to offer. Uh, Psalm, one, some, uh, Psalm 119 uh, says that affliction increases our trust in God's promises. Psalm 119 teaches us that affliction teaches us obedience. Because suffering has a way of convincing us of our spiritual barrenness in a way that nothing else does. So God uses hurting people. The other one is God is stubborn to save. Now maybe you caught this if you've been with us. But in every section in the cycle of Judges, there's four parts. There's, there's rebellion, you know, God's people fall into idolatry. God responds to that rebellion with retribution. And his form of retribution is that he sends a foreign nation to come and oppress them. And it happens over and over again. So you've got rebellion, retribution, and all these other cycles, we, we've been calling it repentance. That's the third cycle. And the fourth cycle is his rescue, that God sends a deliverer to rescue his people from the oppressor. But you see the one that was missing out here? Did you catch it? There's not four parts to this cycle. There's only three. The one that's missing is repentance. We've seen in these cycles that repentance is never full repentance. At best, you could call their repentance remorse for their poor decisions. At best. And at worst, you can call their repentance cries for relief. Essentially, they're just crying uncle in the midst of their oppression. Mr. They're suffering. But in Judges 13, they don't even cry for relief. We don't have anything but silence here. They're so numb to their oppression and their idolatry. They're apathetic. They're dull. They're unresponsive and they're indifferent, both to their idolatry and to their pain. They don't want to be rescued. And what that shows us is that God is more interested in saving them than they are in being saved. God's stubborn to save. Aren't we the same? Don't you see that God gives you grace instead of judgment for your rebellion? Don't you see that if God only helped you when you asked for it, that you'd still be a spiritual pauper? You'd still be an orphan? But instead, grace surprised you one day, didn't it? One day, uh, God woke you up to your sin. He woke you up to your miserable state and he called you to himself. 
He put a great big highlighter on Jesus Christ. And you saw for the first time that Jesus didn't just die for people, but they died for you. You saw for the first time that he didn't just raise from the dead to prove that he's God, but that he rose again from the dead to give you new life. And if you look back on your story and you're really honest, don't you see how God was saving you even though you didn't give a rip about him? And maybe this is you tonight. Maybe tonight he's found you. And friend, can I give you a word of advice? Give up. You can't run faster than God and you can't run to a place that God can't find. See, his pursuit of you is not like the pursuit of police after an offender. His pursuit of you is like a rescue squad coming after you when you're stuck in the middle of an earthquake. When you're stuck in the rubble and God is pulling the rocks and the bills of steam away to find you. That's what he did for Israel and that's what he does for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, your grace toward us, uh, that while we were still sinners, uh, you died for us. Uh, Lord, while we were dead in our transgressions for sin, uh, you came and made us alive. <laughs> Unbelievable, your rich grace toward us. Uh, Lord, may we revel in that even now. In Christ's name, amen.